Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Ed Hulse, publisher at Morania Press, and author and pulp historian Will Murray, discuss the hard-boiled West. The talk was recorded on Friday, August 5, 2022, at Pulp Fest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you. Well, first I have to, uh, especially after the presentation we've just witnessed, you know, Bob and Wyatt, they uh, have fabulous production values, and in light of their excellent PowerPoint and the sound effects, we can't compete with that, so I must again apologize for having left home the thumb drive with all the cover images that we were originally going to run. So, Will and I are, are just going to have to overpower you with the breadth of our knowledge and our sheer animal magnetism. We'll, we'll hope that carries the day. Or our minimal agmatism. <laughs> so, uh, we were talking about uh, uh, Dime Mystery last night. This is another popular publication. It's Pulp Magazine, incredibly popular, long-running, a great seller. Started the same year, late in the year, Dime Western Magazine. And as Will pointed out, as the question pointed out, the, the original chief editor was Rogers Terrell, who was popular's editorial director and charted the directions of many of the magazines before eventually releasing the mundane editorial chores to sub-editors. Now, Rogers Terrell, who also worked at Fiction House, um, had an idea that the Western really needed a shaking up. During the 20s, when Westerns were so popular, magazines, especially those of Fiction House and Clayton, the Western magazines, featured a lot of what used to be called derisively gun dummy stories. And the gun dummy was uh, typically the kind of hero you saw in a lot of the Saturday matinee B-Westerns of the day. He was a kind of a wandering do-gooder, uh, no job, kind of walks into town and he sees a, rides into town I should say, and he, maybe he sees a boy being kicked by a heavy on the sidewalk and he gets down and beats the crap out of the guy and gets involved in some kind of local affair or maybe he goes into a bar and somebody, one of the dance hall girls is uh, being abused and he helps out. But he's somebody who does a lot of unmotivated things essentially just for the purpose of beginning the story with action. He doesn't really have a stake in the outcome of whatever the problem is established. So after many years of this, the Western uh, had become kind of stale, and there were a couple of editors that tried to shake things up. One of them was Carson Mowry at the Dell Pulp All-Western, and of course Rogers Terrell with Dime Western. Now, uh, we talked last night about how Popular's, one of its first four magazines was a detective mystery magazine, detective action stories. They also had a, a Western among their first four titles, Western Rangers. So with the new dime line that they introduced during the depths of the Depression to capture the lower end of the, uh, of the market, Terrell decided to implement these new policies. And as he did with other magazines, he hit on a formula that he called emotional urgency. And what this meant is that instead of having action that you were seeing from the outside, that the characters, especially the protagonists, had a stake, a personal stake in the outcome of the story. 
So instead of just a wandering do-gooder like a Ken Maynard or a Buck Jones or a Hoot Gibson in the movies, every character in these stories would have something at stake. Maybe he was a, a cowboy, a local ranch owner whose brother had been accused of rustling and he has to try and prevent him from being lynched. Uh, maybe he's in love with a girl whose brother has just robbed the local bank. There was some driving force that lent additional suspense to the story so it wasn't just a bunch of unmotivated chases and shootouts and saloon brawls. So uh, he started Dime Western and for the first few issues Terrell who had been working at Fiction House raided a bunch of that, that uh, company's best Western writers who as we also discussed last night were kind of lost their major markets, which in the case of Fiction House was Lariat Stories, Action Stories, and Northwest Stories, when the uh, untimely death of Jack Kelly uh, forced them to take a hiatus in publishing. So these guys had been, Coburn in particular, had been promoted as, at Fiction House as the cowboy author. He actually was a real cowboy. Some of the others were too, like W.C. Tuttle. But Coburn had grown up uh, in, a, in a ranch uh, on Mon in Montana um, called the Circle C, which was one of the, a, a big, big spread. When, if you ever read any Montana history, the Coburn family looms very large during the 1890s and the early 1900s. So Coburn had a whole, uh, 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 he had years worth of practical experience helping his father on the ranch, running into people, using people that he had known in real life as characters and as stories, uh, using composites, taking characteristics of one real-life acquaintance with another, merging them into a character. So Coburn was the star. That he, he, he had a deal with Fiction House where he got paid a stipend, and he would produce a certain amount of words every month. Anything he did over and above that, he would get his word rate, you know, an advanced prorated. So um, Coburn was a star. They also had Harry F. Olmsted, who was another very prolific Western writer, uh, Ray Nassiger, Eugene Cunningham. Uh, you'll see these names over and over again in these early issues of uh, Dime Western. The art director, Alec Portigal, chose a dynamic format for all the covers. Red logo against a yellow background and a scene of, of action kind of in vignette style. So in other words, they didn't draw a lot of uh, backgrounds of mountains and clouds and things like that. You had that stark yellow background. It was something designed to grab the reader as soon as he got into the newsstand. So the early stories, in, in keeping with Terrell's uh, self-imposed mandate were, were done very specifically to advance this idea of emotional urgency. And one of the, the, the tougher um, stories that I remember that I think typifies this whole approach is a Harry F. Olmsted yarn from the, uh, I think it's the June 1934 issue. It's called Trigger Fingers. Now in this, the protagonist we meet as a young boy, he is uh, he and his father, who are nesters, are accosted by one of the big ranchers who wants to drive all the nesters out. So in the ensuing struggle, the rancher kills the nester, 
And the little boy says, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to get you, or words to that effect. And he says, I'm never going to have to worry about you shooting me. And again, in a kind of really uncharacteristically brutal scene uh, that, that you would occasionally find in these early dime westerns, the villain holds him down and cuts off his trigger finger. This is like a 10-year-old kid. Cuts off his finger and he says, well, you'll never pull a trigger on me. But the boy burns with such vengeance that he grows up and he practices fanning a gun so he doesn't need to pull the trigger. And he learns very arduously how to, you know, to shoot accurately with that kind of, of motion. So then we next see him as, as an older man. Now here's where the emotional urgency comes in. He finds out as he's been pursuing this rancher, he falls in love with a girl, and now it turns out that she is the younger sister of the guy who killed his father. So he is forced to choose. Do I, do I you know, get vengeance on my father's behalf, or do I leave him alive because I love his his younger sister. So this is the kind of quandary that many of the characters found themselves in. And as Dime Western went on, they did other variations on that theme. Well, one thing that was uh, very popular during these early uh, uh, tarot years was Western variations on Romeo and Juliet. So there would be two big families, usually two big ranchers, and they're competing for prime cattle land, or they're competing for water rights, or uh, uh, some other you know, valuable mineral deposits that's on the border between the two ranches. And always there's the son of one family is in love with the daughter of another family. So it's the Capulets and the Montagues in, you know, a prairie kind of setting. That turned up a lot, in, not only in Dime Western, but also the sister publication Star Western, which began in 1933. So this formula worked for a number of years during the 30s, Gradually, they kind of dif drifted away from it because, like everything else, if you overuse a certain approach, the, the writers use it as crutches, the stories begin to resemble each other too much, they start falling back on very familiar uh, story patterns and incidents and things like that. So at a certain point in the late 30s, after many years, by the way, of ext extremely effective implementation of this formula. You know, Dime Western, like Dime Detective, and also Adventure Magazine, uh, was a magazine that was so popular they increased the frequency from monthly to twice weekly, to fortnightly. And they did that from, uh, that started in late 1934, and they did it through most of 1935 before they reverted to a monthly schedule. So there were an awful lot of stories being churned out using the same basic formula. But as the 30s got later and started moving towards 1940, uh, different approaches were needed. And at that point, I'll, I'll turn it over to Will, and he can comment on that. Well, I, I think I want to emphasize the fact that it's the quandary and not just the urgency that really drove stories, because Charles also did that in other, his other magazines, including The Spider and such, where the hero would have a crisis here, a crisis here, there. He couldn't be in two places at once, yet he had to solve both, because if he didn't solve both, he, we wouldn't have a, a satisfactory ending. As far as what they did um, in the end 30s, in the early 40s, it was what was going on in the larger pulp world 
was essentially the this the disenfranchisement of the superhero of the superhuman pulp hero, and everybody had you know perfect you know uh, aim could could split a coin on edge with his you know with one lead bullet, uh, and and every trick. The superhuman, larger-than-life cowboy and detective and aviator, whatever, had been run into the ground to the point that even though theoretically the core readership changed on pulp magazines every three years or so, which apparently wasn't that true, but it was somewhat true, uh, people outgrew them, but they didn't necessarily always stop completely. Anyway, they said, what do we do, what do we do? Because around 1938-39, the Western just dropped dead just absolutely dropped dead. And they looked, and, they, and this is not the first time. They were saying that in 27, that the Western had exhausted itself, and that's when the hard-boiled yeah. approach came, because that was also part of a larger uh, sea change towards you know, characters who were more mature and who, who are violent, but was, sometimes it was understated violence or, or creative violence or whatever. The Dashiell Hammett understated and the creative violence could have been, you know, Race Williams or any one of the, the characters that ran through various, you know, genres. It's like, how do we give them gimmicks tricks so they can still win in the end? Anyway, the first thing they did, and it was interesting to see that it was paralleled in the detective field with the Western field, is let's tell stories about ordinary human beings. So in the Western... It wasn't cowboy or sheriff or ranger, which were the main three. It was the banker, the town lawyer, the the the, the blacksmith, the, the the school teacher. You know, these would be the new heroes. They would be just as heroic, but they would be sometimes feet of clay before they, they, they their ankles hardened and their spine stiffened. And somewhere in this process, one writer. I think it was Tom Blackburn, you can correct me, but someone gave him, he found a, a list of occupations in the Wild West that a typical town would have, which would be, you know, blacksmith, lawyer, newspaper editor, newspaper reporter, um, maybe librarian if they had a little library, probably not, uh, bigger towns would, uh, and, and uh, you know, farrier, and, you know, the guy who branded the cattle, who maybe may have been a specialist, or the or the, the range detective, the guy who was part of a cattlemen's association, and they start he he started building stories about a very diverse cast of characters, and everybody copied it as this is the new way to go, you know, the hero isn't you know square jawed, steely eyed, you know, teeth of iron, <laughs> you know, <laughs> bullets of lead, that kind of thing. And so it was like, you know, this meek, unassuming guy, or this, you know, big, hunky guy who maybe was kind of a klutz, or maybe he just couldn't find his way in life until suddenly he was put in a situation where only he could defeat the bank robbery or save the town from being burnt down or whatever the problem was. Uh, and then suddenly he found redemption or recognition or realization, self-realization that I, you know, yeah, just the other day I was just uh, the town bumpkin. And now look, I'm a hero, yeah. and I'm now I'm going to be a hero going forward because I have redeemed myself in my own eyes as well as the eyes of the town. 
And this went on through most of the 40s until the paperback revolution came in and people started saying, you know what? That's BS. You know, we need heroes again. We need cowboys and rangers. It's a cycle. You know, the Western, they, 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 they figured it after a while that the Western had like a five or six year cycle and it continued even into TV and movies. Uh, that basically um, you could run a you could run a kind of western for five or six years with a new format then the western would kind of exhaust itself in the audience and they would drift off and you'd find new western things and the audience would either come back or the renewed audience would discover the western again and say hey this stuff is cool because it always started with juveniles as readers always started with juveniles that answers the question. Yeah, so uh, I, really the Western is, uh, um, at, at, at bottom, it's, a, it's strictly a morality play. The Western's going back to, to really to the Virginian, the 1904 Owen Western novel. It really kicked off the national rage for fictional Westerns. I mean, prior to the, let, let's say, the legitimate uh, uh, Western phase because the dime novel westerns with the exaggerated exploits of Buffalo Bill and Jesse James that had been going on since the mid to late 19th century but uh, these these simple morality plays became more complex and as as time went on there was this gradual move towards maturity that Will was saying and there were very subtle sometimes obvious but sometimes subtle ways uh, uh, that these changes manifested themselves. Now, for example, a lot of the 20s westerns in particular, if you pick up an old Clayton like Ace High or you pick up a Lariat story or Action story, you get this very exaggerated western dialect that sometimes it's, it's tough to read because they overdid it so much. Well, y'all, uh, you know, sure enough, I'm going to... And it, it was tough to read. They gradually in the 40s and again, this may be a stylistic influence of the uh, hard-boiled detective stories with the, with the leaner prose and the more terse dialogue exchange. They gradually phased that out. It was always a part of it. You know, it was always there, especially if the character they were portraying was, say, somebody of limited intelligence. And using that exaggerated dialect was the writer's approach to letting you know that he wasn't quite in the same educational league as some of the other characters and stories. But, you know, it got to a point where finally the, the worst of it would be a, a the spelled, you know, T-H apostrophe. That's, that's how much they phased it out. But what also happened is, like most of the other genres, after World War II, the national mood of the country had changed. You had a lot of readers coming back. Now, a lot of the, the guys who had been 18, 19, 20 years old and went into World War Two, who would have read the Pulse before the war, a lot of them came back and turned their attention to the paperback book, and uh, um, because they were reading those, you know, they were small enough to carry in rucksacks, they were being sent overseas, they were being sold in the P.O., so a lot of these guys switched their allegiance from Pulps to paperbacks, which as a rule reprinted some of the adult, more adult novels that had been in hardcover, and uh, there was, you know, Max Brand, of course, was always in pulp, and they reprinted zillions of his things in paperback. But then when paperback originals came along, and there were companies like Fawcett's Gold Medal that were doing paperback originals, you had a, a different, maturer, and indeed a tougher kind of Western. And one of these, I'll make a slight digression from the pulp end, is 
uh, W.R. Burnett's Stretch Dawson, which was published as one of the very first gold medal originals. Now, that was a story Burnett was famous for the gangster, the uh, really seminal gangster novel, Little Caesar, and he had also written a remarkable and sadly under-recognized Western novel called St. Johnson, which was his version, his fictionalized version of the Earp brothers in Tombstone and their feud with the Clantons. Uh, St. Johnson was the name of the lawman who was considered to be one of these impossibly moral, upright characters. That's how he got the name Saint. But meanwhile, he's shooting down these guys left and right. Well, Burnett wrote that in the style of a black mask story. I mean, it could just as easy, you could have put Paul Kane's byline on that book. And it was a, one of the biggest early sellers for Fawcett Gold Medal. And the interesting thing is Burnett had not written it for paperbacks originally. He had written it as the treatment for a motion picture, which was made by 20th Century Fox as Yellow Sky, and it starred Gregory Peck as Stretch Dawson, and it also had an early role for Richard Widmark. Now, that movie's script reflected that same hard-boiled attitude of the characters, the terseness of the dialogue, the high suspense generated by the very carefully crafted situations. And the pulp writers, especially because they were struggling in the late 40s and early 50s to make a living, uh, they were taking note of all these trends. And you started to get some, some of the writers saying, yeah, I, I can't do these things. They, as Will said, it was cyclical. They were changing the approaches every three, four years. They said, I can't even sell the same story I wrote in 1945. I can't sell that in 1950, especially when I have fewer markets. Now, significantly, Dime Western was one of the longest-lived uh, uh, of the Western pulps. In fact, a lot of them, really, when you think about it, I mean, even the, even the fiction house pulps that started in the 20s, they were all still around in the early 50s. But, again, the only reason that the Westerns could survive was to adapt to the changing mood of the readers and you start to see, again, as Will said, this maturity creep into these stories. Now, in the post-war era, and especially into the early 50s, uh, Terrell had long since relinquished the editorial reins. And Mike Tilden, who was a sub-editor of Popular, originally was the um, editor-in-chief of, of Dime Western towards the end. And he encouraged a whole new group of writers, one of whom was Elmore Leonard. Mm -hmm. So those of you who are familiar with Elmore Leonard as a crime writer in later years, he wrote a lot of great westerns. In fact, his, his short story, 310 to Yuma, which most of us know is from its two movie adaptations, that originally appeared in the 1953 issue of Dime Western. And in, in one of the books that involves westerns, and of course the go-to is Will's own word slingers, uh, available at dealers, a local dealer near you, well, I hope so, but yeah, I, I was going to bring a copy to the panel. I found I had none in my stock, so I have none to sell, but I wrote this. One of my proudest achievements was writing Word Slingers, a book on the pulp westerns, from a writer who actually never really read the pulp westerns because I was writing from the standpoint of the yeah. authors, editors, publishers, and their history and what they said about it. Well, I don't remember if I read it in Word Slingers or if I read it maybe in John Dynan's book on the pulp western. But he excerpts a long letter from Mike Tilden to Elmore Leonard. He has just rejected one of Leonard's stories, but he's really, he, he's killing Leonard with kindness. Mm. And he's saying, 
You're so good, you're so talented, your stories have such promise. And he's giving them very specific and very technical uh, suggestions, like, you know, introduce so-and-so 500 words sooner into the story and delete this character because he detracts from this situation. Very precise, and it, it goes to show you how seriously somebody like a Mike Tilden took the Western and how, how much help he was to the authors that he was encouraging. You know, once upon a time, when Jack Byrne was editing the fiction house, it says, you know, get the guy into a gunfight in the first, first paragraph, you know. And this is how much things had changed. And it's like, you know, strengthen the relationship between the rancher's daughter and so on. So, so it, it just goes to show you that, that in order to try and keep this, this genre alive and fresh, they were willing to change the attitudes. And I should also say in terms of the hard-boiled quality, I think we'll agree to this, the, also, in the, the general mood during the post-war years, you had all these people coming back. There was a lot of cynicism. There was a lot of uh, uh, apprehension over the d direction of humanity after the atomic bomb. And there was a toughness and a grittiness. It's the kind of thing that, that in, in one case, took detective fiction away from the ratiocination, let's say, of, of the great sleuths and made it more film noir kind of. It made it darker with, with uh, characters who were often uh, not really sympathetic at all. They may have been protagonists, but they weren't really the kind of great sleuths that you could identify with. That kind of thing seeped into the pulp western too towards the end. I, I think I want to make a couple of points about the post-war uh, audience. Harry Steger, who was the publisher of Dime Western, said, you know, when the pulp started to fade, he said, the old hokum isn't going over anymore. And that was a confession that what they'd been published, even the more mature pulps, was a, a species of hokum. Because the, partly because the magazines are going through the mail, they were very constrained in, the, in some of the seamy sides of life they could show. I mean, you can have a dance hall prostitute in a in a, in a pulp story, but you can't really you can't really do much yeah. with her because you can't show her flying her trade yeah. explicitly. So, and the other part of it, and the reason the old hokum wasn't going over anymore, the people, young guys had gone off to World War II, and although they had seen and done heroic things, they had seen and witnessed unheroic things or necessary things that were not yeah. in the in the in their idealized minds before they went off to war. Even Doc Savage, a super idealized character, became a little bit more cynical, much more of a Cold War character and a post-war character and a less heroic character, resized. He's yeah. resized. So, um, and, and, the, and one of the reasons the paperback novels took off is not only could they sell, not only could they offer to the public a complete story by one author, which might be more absorbing, but they weren't going through the mails, so they could be more explicit on a bunch of levels. Right. They weren't subject to the same editorial censorship. In fact, they were probably pushed to differentiate themselves from the pulps. But the other thing that has nothing to do with the content, which I find very interesting, is no matter what the pulps did, going to digest or whatever, it was old technology, printing-wise, and you had a flood of new periodicals after World War II, which choked the newsstands, and... One of the reasons before the war the comic books were beating the pants off of the pulps is it was the same dime, or even less than a pulp, which might be 15 cents. It was a dime, and you could stick 10 of them 
where you could yeah. normally stick three pulps in a rack. Yeah. So the dealer had the incentive to put the Digest or the Dime, or, or, or the dime comic or the post-war 25-cent paperback, which was even smaller in some ways. It was thicker than a comic book or a magazine, but it was smaller. It right. could be racked differently. You'd have different racks. So from the newsstand ground zero of it, the bookstore, to the degree bookstores carried all of this stuff, and many did, it's the merchant is saying, what can I put on the racks, my, my limited space on the racks, that doesn't take up too much space, but makes me the most profit per rack. So the comic book one, the digest one, the paperback one, other formats, thinner formats or squatter formats or whatever you whatever they were, the pulp was a big fat slab that was essentially six comic books yeah. bound together in terms of size, and that helped run things, which has nothing to do with the content. Because right. even if the pulps were able to liberate themselves and produce more explicit material, more true-to-life material, more realistic hard-boiled material, it was going to lose rack space. Yeah. It just was going to, it just, there was no way around it, you know. One, yeah. one reason Ranch Romances was the last surviving pulp is they squished it down to this little thing yeah. that fit multiple copies in one rack. Oh. Yeah. Another thing we should mention is how many of the pulp western writers, and this is getting away from the hard-boiled angle a little bit, but how many of them graduated to the slicks where they had a little more freedom, the, the formula was not quite as high bound. Although I guess you could say with, with some of the slicks, they were very they had very rigid restrictions. However, they did allow a little more latitude in the content and the types of stories and the emphasis. Yeah. You know, they didn't have the emphasis on bang bang uh, slam action. But when you think about guys like Ernest Haycox, who wrote a lot of, of early pulp, well he winds up going to the top slicks, Collier's and Saturday Evening Post where he did extremely well. Luke Short was another one. His first story is a, serial, a Western serial and adventure magazine during its uh, popular publication incarnation. And he wound up in the slicks as well. And these guys also were big in the paper market and even eventually in hardcovers. And it was the guys who were more readily adaptable to these more mature types of storytelling. Now there are some things some of these guys, especially Luke Short, there are scenes in Luke Short that will rival any black mask uh, um, story just in terms of toughness and the things that the protagonists do and the, the situations that they have to endure. Now, for, just to give you one example, very broadly speaking, you know, the old gun dummy type of hero always won a fight and at the end, he always shot the villain. As the form evolved, and especially in the post-war, the tougher, grimmer post-war period we're talking about, you would have scenes where these guys would absorb enormous amounts of physical punishment, and they would lose fights occasionally. Now, they still always won in the end, but you started to see a lot more of that. You started to see a more a vulnerable type of guy, and as a result... Uh, uh, some of them overcompensated uh, with their own toughness. I mean, that's a tough thing to describe. I can't really quantify it as skillfully as I'd like to. But you'll see, if, if you get around to reading a lot of this post-war Western stuff, 
you'll find guys who are, you, you can tell that life has kicked them around. You know, they haven't spent their entire adult lives riding into towns and solving all the problems of, you know, the pretty shop girl uh, in the general store. These are guys who've, maybe they came out of the Civil War and they, they went back to decimated ranches and farmlands or, you know, maybe they were former outlaws and they're trying to get away from their past by going to uh, faraway countries. This is not the cowboy hero of the 20s. By the time you got to that later era, and Dime Western played around with this formula also, and again, I think Mike Tilden, you know, we all know who Rogers Terrell is because of the outsized role he played in developing the popular publication's editorial strategy. But everything I've read from Tilden, whether it's things that he wrote for the writer's magazines or these letters that have been excerpted to his contributors, I think he deserves a, a big part in the, in the maturation of the pulp western, especially after World War II. Now, everybody was forced to do this to some extent, but I think Dime Western did it more skillfully than just about any other uh, magazine at the time. I, I think a point that is of interest to me, because I grew up on TV westerns, which were saturating the market in the late six late 50s, early 60s, when I was first watching TV regularly, TV watching with comprehension. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of the pulp Western writers went to TV. That's right. Yeah. Frank Gruber, you know, uh, Tales of Wells Fargo was his show. Tommy Thompson, which was a pulp slick guy, he was with, I think, Bonanza and others. I keep finding new pulp writers who I know from my book and my research, oh, this one's attached to this TV show because there were so many TV shows, Western TV shows at that time. Even if you were knowledgeable about them, people don't tend to pay attention to the writers so yeah. much as the actors and the producers. And a lot of them went to, t went to TV and did quite well. And I, re I always remember Ryerson Johnson, the Western writer of, 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 of the 30s, 20s and 30s, and into the 40s, who, who said, you know, um, when, when he got stuck on a Western plot, either starting or continuing, he'd go see a Western movie, watch it, and say, okay, I can borrow up to this point, then I'm going to go to Texas instead of Arizona and have different things happen. And he went out, when he went out to Hollywood to do some TV stuff, he said, the writers' rooms are full of pulp Westerns. Yeah. They were stealing from each other. And um, a lot of the West, one of the one of the trademarks of the lighter popular publications, Western, was the psychotic villain. Yeah, the villain oh, yeah. who was who rode into town and he didn't have any business, he didn't have any past. He may have been on the run, but his his mission in life was to be a bully, a psychopath, a rapist, a, a, a just a mean, miserable son of a bitch because he had nothing to do and nowhere to go. And I used to watch The Rifleman, and that was like every fifth episode. Yeah. You know, if it wasn't one guy, it was a guy and his whole family. And if it wasn't, you know, this, it was that. And it was, it was just the, 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 the straight arrow yeah. rancher against a personification of evil who was doing evil just, you know, for its own joy. Yeah. Instead of, well, I'm here to rob the bank. Yeah. No, I'm here to just make, turn this town upside down and make everybody miserable until... You kill me or I kill you because I got nothing to live for and I'm just, yeah. I'm psycho. Yeah. You know, they don't say they're psycho. And I'm thinking, that's, you know, I watched that show as a kid. It was very dramatic. But when I got into researching 
the pulp westerns, and I became familiar with the types of pulp westerns, I think, these riflemen shows, they're like dime western. Yeah. They're, they're dime western with a recurring hero. I said, well, this is very interesting. Yeah. And the, the psycho stuff drifted into the paper, early paperbacks yep. because they were looking for ways to make, have more mature stories. And one way was to have, you know, the hero, the villain, or both of them have psychological problems or psychological right. issues right. as opposed to being cardboard good and bad. Right. And I think that's very fascinating because yeah. it was a big trend yeah. in the late forward, in the post-war era, basically. It didn't appear in the pre-war era. So yeah. it's another departure yeah. from the old routine pulp. I'll add parenthetically because uh, uh, I just thought of it while Will was talking about the TV Westerns that um, most of my research, those of you who, who've read some of the things I've done, most of you know that my uh, research on film to pulp to film is really more about feature length films than it is TV. But I have found numerous cases where pulp stories, pulp Western stories were adapted for TV shows and the running character was simply grafted into the plot. So, if, in other words, it would have been a story without a series hero, but Maverick would get grafted into the plot, or Cheyenne would get grafted into the plot. So that's an area for further research. But, but again, the kinds of stories that were, were used in that way for these TV shows all come from the post-war period. They were not adapting 1927 Fiction House stories for those TV shows. So we only have a few minutes left. I'm going to throw it open for questions. Michelle? Uh, Ed, um, TV westerns in the late 40s when commercial TV began and early 50s were pretty juvenile all the way around. A lot of humor, a lot of, uh, you know, this, that, and the other. Lone Ranger, Cisco Kid, um, all those. In the late 50s, the western became, uh, the TV western became, a, a, the most hard-boiled westerns of all were on television because they were all series characters. There was no general Western show extension, Death Valley, something like that. But I mean, the vast majority of Westerns were series characters. And Shotgun Slade was the most tough of all. <laughs> and that was Scott Brady, who was a real tough guy, the toughest guy. And Shotgun Slade was vicious, a bounty hunter, vicious bounty hunter, 1959, 60th started. I was 12. I remember my dad wouldn't let me watch Shotgun Slate because he thought the moral character was bad for kids. Hmm. And the same with Pat and Will Trout. That was a real vicious show. And people forget about that. So, what do you think? Of, of, of the, um, the, most of the scholars who write about vintage TV, the general consensus is that the first true adult Western TV show was Gunsmoke which had been on the radio and had some very, very tough and uncompromising stories and situations. I mean, there were so many people who got killed off at the end of a Gunsmoke episode, uh, you know, and yeah, so yeah, that's, that's, I, I failed to detect any specific pulp stories in Gunsmoke. Pulp, I think they all, I mean, most of them come right from the radio show. They're adapted from the scripts of the radio show. But I have found very specific. You look at the end credits of a show like Maverick, and they say, you know, story by Les Savage Jr., story by Tom Blackburn. You know, you, you can eventually track those things down with the help of the Fiction Mag's index. The Bellum and Gruber wrote a lot of those yeah. psychological stories. Yeah. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, sir. Fascinating, and I'm always amazed by how you guys can recall all these things. 
Uh, this is the first time I've heard the term hard-boiled applied to Westerns, and it's my ignorance. But you've talked around it, and you've given examples and so forth. Do you have like a specific definition of hardball that you use both for westerns and for detective stories? Um, I, I like to think the hard-boiled label has a certain flexibility. You, it's sort of like certain kind of music. If you, even if you can't identify what kind of music is, if you hear enough of it, you said, okay, that's yeah. I'll call it hard-boiled. This is hard-boiled yeah. music. But you know, to codify it. Usually you had a morally somewhat ambiguous hero, but he was still a hero. He was still a positive person in terms of he, 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 even even if he was saving the day for a for a buck, there was a part of him that thought saving the day was worth it without the buck. Yeah. It's just that sometimes the buck is what drove him, uh, and the the bad guys had real motivation. They weren't always bad, bad. Sometimes they just had these objectives or these imperatives, and maybe they were psychological issues that drove them, but they were, they were not, you know, snivy whiplash, you know, twirling his mustache. They weren't cliches. Although if, you, if enough hard-boiled of anything when it was written, it eventually became its own cliché. Yeah. I don't, we didn't mention Les Savage Jr., who I think was one of the, the major hard-boiled Western writers of the, of the, the late phase, because he came in late. And he, he, he did non-hard-boiled stuff. He did the Senorita Savage, the uh, Scorpion stuff, which is kind of like light, sexy, you know, action girl stuff. But, uh, so that was fantasy. Um, but, you know... He wrote a famous story about a bullwhip duel and these two guys who had a grudge and they, instead of guns, which was the usual, they each had a bullwhip and they were bullwhipping each other, which was, I think, much more interesting and, it and takes more time and there's more yep. art to it, you know, and, and so that. But yeah, I don't know that you can codify it. Well, because you mentioned something too, that like the level of violence or the type of violence part of it too, right? Yep, yeah. Some of it is the understated violence of Adashiel Hammett you know, understated in how it's written, but sometimes un understated in how it's done. That maybe someone slips a knife into someone's ribs where in a more pulpy story, it's a Tommy gun, you know, yeah. it, you still get yeah. a dead guy. Um, and, but, you know, the hallmark of all pulp is a, a focus on violence, solving problems through violence, or at least partially through violence. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading uh, an article in the Roundup in the early 80s, uh, when the pulp, when the TV Western was exhausted, and, you know, and Little House on the Prairie was practically the only Western, and the guy said, look, you know, we don't have Westerns on TV anymore, because it was always reduced to this morality play with a gunfight in the last five minutes that solved the problem, instead of solving the problem with some other you know, approaches that might also be interesting, but maybe, you know... Not as satisfying. Not as satisfying, not as definitive, yeah. you know. Um, so, you know, and he said, you know, the, the TV Western died because it, 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 it jumped through the same hoops yeah. constantly without enough variation in, in the end for people to, you know, I've seen this story. Yeah. You know, I've just seen it differently. I would also say that, that you can... It, it is... 
correct to, to, to observe that, you're, you know, you're talking about, well, is it, was it a style? Was it part of the content? And the, and the answer is both. And Will's just talked about the, the content and the attitudes. But there is, uh, in, in the way that they wrote some of the, the violent stories, you know, there was, in the earlier gun dummy type westerns, they'd have gunfights that would go on for two or three pages. Whereas in keeping with the more modern black mass kind of thing, it was, you know, there was a quick burst from his hip and somebody crumples and, uh, you know, and that's, that's the end of it rather than, you know, having these guys jump off balconies and flailing away with fanning their six shooters and all that kind of thing. So there was definitely both a stylistic and a, uh, uh, you know, in terms of content, not only, not only what was being done, but the way it was being described, where, where you can say the hard-boiled influence kept correcting. I, I think one of the hallmarks of hard-boiled stories is the good, good guy and the bad guy may both be morally ambiguous. Right. You know, where it's right. not as simple as star versus, you know, uh, kerchief bandit mask guy, yeah. you know, rustler. Um, it, 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 it was something that a, a more adult reader could read and even though deep in his heart he may know, well, this is fiction and this is exaggerated and this, is, this has a lot of conventions to make it sound realistic or more realistic than juvenile pulp, it still is it's kind of a more uh, unadulterated hokum. Right. Or adulterated hokum, I should say. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 the, it's the cream on the top of the milk and not the milk. Right. And, you know, because it... This old little cream, you think, well, this is good stuff. You know, it's rare. It's rich. I don't want to run a two-hour schedule, so we'll take one last question. Yes? It's not a question, more of a comment. Uh, I found interesting is, of course, the first Western Pope was Western Strait Magazine in 1990. And that was the main basic weekly poll for a good 20 years. And what the comment I noticed is about 38, 39, Austin and Dan Western, they have on the heading, the leading Western Right. I, I should have mentioned that. I thought about that, yeah. And so uh, as far as I recall, basically their circulation has surpassed Reed Smith, and that's how they can make that comment. And again, due to the changing of the philosophy and the story type, and show that they did hit on what the readers wanted. Well, just saying quickly, you know, you're, you're right. Dime Western did deliver more of what the readers at that particular moment, you know, keeping in mind that these things are all secular and that certain elements predominate in different eras. But there was a very practical reason, too, why Dime Western overtook Western Story, and that is when, they, when Western Story lost Max Brand for yeah. good. You know, first they cut him down during the Depression. They cut down his word rate. By 1936, he was gone. He didn't see Max Brand anymore in Western Story. And under his own, you know, under Max Brand and under the 18,000 other pseudonyms that he employed, he had been in literally every issue of Western Story magazine, practically every issue, since 1921. And he was still being published in hardcover and Dodd Mead. But when he left Western Story magazine, a lot of the juice ran out of uh, the magazine. And that's when they, they also, in that period, I don't know if it was exactly 37, they replaced Frank Blackwell, who had been in charge for many years, and they changed that magazine's direction, too. Again, an example of having to, to shift uh, uh, editorial emphasis to reflect the uh, changing uh, marketplace.
So with that, I want to thank all of you for putting up with us and for not having pretty covers to look at, but we hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you soon. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event podcast is copyright 2022 by William P. Lampkin, all rights reserved.